Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Last week, I was at Town Hall Seattle talking to Seahawks All-Pro Michael Bennett in front of 800 of our closest friends. As I think you'll hear, he is funny, fearless, and had the crowd in the palm of his hand. When people want us just to be part of the brands and sell things, it just makes you go crazy because it's like when it's time to speak about things that are great, they won't let you do it. But when it's time to sell something, it's like everybody's pushing you towards it. And it's just and it sucks sometimes. They love the touchdown, but they don't love what comes with it, because at the end of the day, everybody believes that these guys are making a deal with the devil. The deal with the devil is sometimes is great. But when it comes calling, it's one of those things where people don't have sympathy for you. As my friend Seattle teacher Jesse Agopian said, it was a social justice tailgate party. And now without further ado, from Town Hall, Seattle, me talking to Michael Bennett. Let's do this. Wow. That's loud. Was that for me? Those applause? That's crazy. So th- thanks for coming out, Mike. I know you don't have a lot going on these days, so I appreciate it. <laughs> no, no, we don't have nothing major going on these days. Nothing too much. Just no. a light weekend. Well, kind of like the 49ers who got a bye week this weekend. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. For every Michael Bennett zinger, you take a drink, by the way, <laughs> tonight. No, it's an honor to be here with Seahawk Pro Bowler and Parent Map cover model, Michael Bennett. Man of many trays. <laughs> no, this is beautiful, beautiful picture. So let's start this off. I love that we're doing this because it's a chance to get beyond sound bites and actually have a political conversation with somebody who I think has shown himself to be a uniquely interesting political athlete in a year that has seen a renaissance of political athletes. So in all seriousness, man, take take a second. Thank you for making the time a couple of days before the big game. Oh, no, thank you, man. Thank God. I didn't think anybody was going to show up. I came out, I was like, whoa. (laughs) When I came out, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of people here. (laughs) Yeah, it's like like, like a Seahawks crowd, only uh, smaller. But... (laughs) so this shouldn't be too rough for you um so i just wanted to start out to me this is the question that frames all of this and i don't think you're going to get this question in seattle because seattle is kind of awesome but you're going to have people who say why are you doing this uh shouldn't athletes just shut up and play what do you say to that statement when people say athletes should not be concerned about politics should not speak about politics they should just shut up and play i think i think it's kind of i think it's it's, it's a stupid concept anyway, because most of the time people want to consider athletes as just being a part of the sport, but they forget that we are a human being and we are part of the society and we can't, you know, take ourselves out of it just simply because we make money or simply because we have a lot of fans or simply because we get all the, we do a lot of nice things at the, at the core of everything. We're still just a human being and we have family members that are part of any social issues that's going on. So I think it's just stupid. They, they just want us not to be a part of it, but we have such a, you know, a great platform to be able to share, you know, interesting messages and a chance to change lives. And it's a big responsibility, but at the same time, it's a responsibility that we are capable of and we all want to do great things with it. But when people want us just to be part of the brands and sell things, it just makes you go crazy because it's like when it's time to speak about things that are great, they won't let you do it. But when it's time to sell something, it's like everybody's pushing you towards it. And it's just, and it sucks sometimes. Yeah. It's so interesting when you think about Roger Goodell and the NFL. Yeah, we're going to go there, by the way. Um, And about what they think over on Madison Avenue about all these NFL players who've spoken out, who've made gestures during the anthem, who've spoken out at press conferences. Because the NFL, as people might know, is sometimes called the no fun league. They'll (laughs) find players for wearing the wrong color shoelaces, spitting the wrong color tobacco. And yet... During these protests, the NFL has been hands off. Do you think that's because they are supportive of athletes speaking out, or do you think it's because they're scared huh? if there, there will be a backlash if they? I if think they, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's that side of it where they're silently, you know, 
you know, being a part of it and letting the guys do what they want to do. But it's also the issue of I think there's a big chance that there could be a lot of backlash because there's so many brands that's supporting and pumping money into the NFL and certain things are are touchy. You know, you can't really talk about certain things when it comes to certain brands. So, you know, with a lot of players, too, that's a, it's a touchy subject, too, because at the end of the day, everything in America is about your brand right now. It's about your Twitter. It's about your Instagram. It's about your Facebook. In a time period about this, once you say something, you can't take it back. And if all of a sudden you're you're a, a Bernie Sanders supporter and, and, and you lose fans, you can't all of a sudden change and say you're a Barack Obama or you can't, you don't have time to change anymore like you used to because your message is just spread out. And I think the NFL is definitely just wants to stay out of it because they don't want to have their brand you know, attached to certain things. And yet you're doing press conferences wearing a, a Bernie Sanders baseball cap. So, so. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I mean, for me, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't really care, really, honestly, because at the end of the day, I, I can't really live my life worried about, you know, what people want me to be or what I should say. It's all about what I feel. And I think that's what makes me a human being and makes me a part of what's going on because it's like, I feel it and I have to talk about it because if I don't, then I would, I wouldn't be being myself. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, in the, in this the show business world, celebrities that really can't be themselves. They never did the whole time they're acting. Well, for me, it's just, I'm just being me. If I see something and I'm a part of it, if it's an issue and I want to talk about it, then I feel, I feel like I'm obligated to speak upon it. What you just said, it sounds so much like this famous quote, my favorite quote, actually, from Muhammad Ali, who once said, like, the press was hounding him about, why do you think this about the civil rights movement? Why do you think this about Vietnam? And he got so frustrated and he just looked at him and he said, I don't have to be who you want me to be. (laughs) Exactly. Mm. So... So let's let's get to the nub, as uh, my friend John Carlos likes to say. Um, everybody I know who is political, and I'm sure most of the people in this room have an origin story, you know, like Luke Cage or Daredevil. You know, you got your your superhero <laughs> origin story. You know, maybe it's uh, a family member, maybe it's a book you read, maybe it's an experience you had where you just said, you know what, I'm going to be conscious, I'm going to be woke, I'm going to do something about this world what's your origin story why are you you um i think my my mom was um she went to a historically black college and then so i grew up you know reading about all the different things that happened and all the different things um that happened in america and one of my punishments growing up was re- to read the, read the encyclopedia so i had a lot of time <laughs> i had a lot of time to you know absorb a lot of information and and i was i was grounded a lot guys just to say so I had a lot of time to absorb a lot of information and, and doing that, I, you know, I started researching and as I got older, I started researching more and more. And I just, I just love the, the, the time to be able to look at things that happen and be able to, you know, have the opportunity now to go back and take all the information that I absorb and be able to try to create change now. Wow. And, and there's a book club in the Seattle locker room, right? Yeah. What are y'all reading? Right. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, right now, you know, I've been doing the kids book club and we were re- recently reading the hatchet and and before and this last one, I've been um, reading um, Kareem's last book, you know, so which was a pretty interesting book. And, you know, if you guys didn't get Kareem's book. It was it was, it was a nice book. Yeah. I mean, Kareem's an interesting guy. Like he wrote a book all from the perspective of Sherlock Holmes's brother. <laughs> and and, and he, then a, he lot wrote of time. a book about. Yeah. And he's seven foot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I interviewed them. They made me sit on three phone books, seriously, so our eye level would be the same. Well, can we get some phone books so it could be the same height as me? <laughs> get 10. I want you to feel like a man tonight. Yeah. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. It was weird. <laughs> it was strange, un- undoubtedly. Um, it, it does raise a question, though, about you know the Seattle locker room. I mean, it's, it just seems, and I think people here would agree with me, that it seems atypical. To put it mildly, it seems like a uniquely open place, especially by NFL standards. And is that because you have a coach and management that's like, let's just let the room breathe? Or is it because there's a set of individuals in there who are uniquely open-minded? Or is it because maybe you're in the city of Seattle and it's just something in the oxygen? I think it's all a little bit of all three, honestly. But, you know, when you have a coach like Pete Carroll who has been in some of the craziest neighborhood, you know, going into the South Central, you know, getting players to come play for him, you know, going all across America and walking into, you know, a lot of African-American homes and telling their parents that 
I'm going to take care of your son. You know, he built, he, he's built up a trust there and he understands that people are different. And I think a lot of times in the NFL or just coaches in general, they want, they want the player to personify who they are. You know what I'm saying? So when you have a coach that's uptight and you have a coach that has certain things the way that he does, players tend to want to be there. If they want you to wear a suit, he wears a suit, he wants you to wear a suit. But P is the totally opposite. He's an open-minded person. And him having been able to be open-minded has let people be their true self. You know, you see it in business. You look at Google, Amazon, and all these businesses, Facebook, and they're, they're letting people dress the way they want to dress, letting people talk the way they want to talk, letting people bring their kids to work. And that's all P is doing. He's bringing, creating an atmosphere where people can be themselves. And while doing that, he he has opened up a lot of doors for guys to speak upon issues that are going on. And we have a locker room that's full of tons of characters. You know, I literally they're characters. We've got a lot of guys in there. And you know, when now that they have the platform to actually speak their mind, it's it's letting them grow into men. And I think a lot of times, you know, you go into situations where they want you to be a man on the field, but they don't want you to be a man off the field. And that's hard to that's hard for people to grow. Now, people may be aware that Michael Bennett's got a brother who happens to be a pretty damn good NFL player by the name of Martellus. Clap if you even knew that, that he is brother Martellus. Um, I'm pretty sure they saw the E60. It was the most watched E60 ever. Really? Yeah. Are you, is it the one about your brothers is the most watched E60? Yeah, it was about both of us. Okay, yeah. My bad. <laughs> the two Bennett's. Yeah, it was, it was about both of us the most watched. Now, I'm... I'm sure you guys speak. I mean, is, you know, people often hold up the New England Patriots as like the model franchise. Uh, they frankly make me itch a little bit. Um, but I, yeah, I forgot where I was for a second. My bad. Um, you know, that's is, a touchy subject. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, is it different in Belichick land in terms of like locker room culture? I think so. I think it's one of those things where he just don't want people talking about. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Just don't talk about what they're doing on the field and what they're going to be doing in the game. And I think, I mean, it's, it's smart if you think about it. Why, there's a lot of times I go look at what a guy says and I'm like, oh, they're really going to do that. Like he just told us what they well, just told us the game plan. And Belichick doesn't want like that. You know, he's a he's just wants you to if you have things that are going off the field, you can talk about it. You know, my brother is a perfect place for my brother. He he loves football. And then on top of that, he could be himself. And, and that's all a human being can ask for, really. That's really good. It's, and people, I'm sure, are aware, you know, Bill Belichick, he wrote this uh, letter to Donald Trump about how much he loved and supported him that got read the week of the elections. And <laughs> it, yeah, this is quite a crowd. My goodness. Um, it, and it was so interesting because later that week, it was Patriots, Seahawks. Yeah. It was the only loss the Patriots had all year with Tom Brady. Yes. God bless America. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I was watching that game wondering if, you know, the Patriots were a little bit side-eyed to their coach, like, man, it's been quite a week, Bill, you know, <laughs> um, you want that 100%, huh? Yeah, um, give you 60. Yes, give him 60. Um, like, but honest question, though, how would that have played in your locker room if you knew that the coach was basically like waving pom-poms for Trump that week and then came in and was like, all right, fellas, let's do this? I think, I don't know. I think it's one of those things where you want him to be able to, you know, say what he believes in at least. But at the same time, I think you're going to be a little disconnect because you're like, well, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in America mm -hmm. right now. You, how could you support that coaching? But at the yeah. same time, you have this job and I think it'll just be like a crazy dilemma. I don't know how those guys did it. I didn't ask my brother. I was because I thought it would be a long story. And <laughs> I was like, let's not go there. <laughs> but I think it'd be super, it'd be a hard, it'd be a hard thing to talk about because at the end of the day, it's something that's touching a lot of, a, a lot of people and it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's change, it's going to change the outcome of our children and it's going to change the outcome of America, whether it's good or bad, it's, something's going to happen there. And, you know, when somebody comes out and say something, like I said, he has to stick to it and he at least he stuck to it. I, I respect yeah. that about him. Yeah. I mean, but the other thing too, we got to say is that the Belichick Trump thing, that is a pimple on the butt of the politics of this NFL yeah. season. I mean, this has been the and, and less attractive. Um, this has <laughs> been the most politicized NFL season. It, ha it has been ever. It, was, it all started with a knee, too. It all started with a knee, yeah. and that gets to my my question to you: Is like, what was your reaction when you just first heard 
that Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee during the anthem and then talking to reporters about structural racism in the United States. I actually know Kaepernick pretty good. So, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but when I was actually surprised more about the outcome of how it changed what people thought. And for me, it was one of those things where it was a conversation that needed to be had. It was a, it was people needed to have that. It was, it's been such a long time and there's so many things going on. And I think so many people in America are in different populations. If you're in the South, you grew up different. If you grew up in Seattle, you grew up, a, a, it's different up here than where I'm from in Texas and Louisiana. So it was one of those things where in Seattle, you might not see as much of the stuff that goes on down south. And mm -hmm. for him to actually start a conversation, not only just a conversation within the NFL, it was a worldly conversation. I mean, this mm -hmm. guy had everybody talking, whether it was they didn't agree with it, it was a conversation. And that was the greatest thing about it. And what I liked about it most was that it brought the young people together to start talking about things. I think mm -hmm. for a long time, the young people were just worried about, you know, the Kardashians and stuff like that. So, you know, everybody <laughs> wanted to, was Bruce this or was he this? And it was like, I don't know what to call him now. So it yeah. was like, you know, and it was one of those things. And it was one of those things where it brought, it brought everybody just to have the conversation, you know, and the conversation, it was a good conversation because Everybody was talking about it. You know, I turn on CNN, I see it. I turn on ESPN, I see it. Food Network, they were talking about it. It was just, <laughs> it, it was something that, you know, for a long time, I just think that it was, it was good that people started to pay attention to the things that are going on. Because for, if you really think about it, you know, you think about Emma Till, you think about all these things that happened. And a lot of people didn't get to see it because there was no, there was no Periscope and there was no Snapchat and there was no Instagram. Now information is just at the snap of a hand and people can't be a part of something that they were never a part of. You know, people weren't a part of the people getting hosed down. They saw some of it, but to actually see it like, as it's happening, it, it changes your mindset on things. And I think it was, it was a conversation that needed to be had. And yeah. And, and one of the coolest uh, codas, if you will, or footnotes to the 49ers season was their GM, Trent Baalke. It's well known. He was feeding the press this idea that Kaepernick was dividing the locker room. And after the season, the team voted to give him the team courage award uh, showing Oh, and, and Trent Baalke got fired. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the difference between Kaepernick and uh, everybody else, I felt like was like everybody has their idea of what America should be like or their idea of what something should be. But nobody's willing to actually go out there and stand on that line. He stood on that line, whether it was a fine line that people disagreed with or people agreed with it. He actually stood on the line. So you got to give him respect if you didn't like him or not. He did something. And no matter what happened, the, the people wanted to kill him. The people were burned his jerseys. He stayed true to the he stayed true to his path. And forever, I'm going to have a lot of respect for him for that. Wow. Um, now, I don't like him as a quarterback. That's a whole nother story. I'll sack him all the time. And, you know, it doesn't matter. Hit him out of bounds. But. As a man, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You brought the sacks yeah, to yeah, Kaepernick. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, so talk about. I, I know that, and I, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. But when Kaepernick started to do his thing, first sitting, then taking a knee, everybody was like, "What are the Seahawks going to do?" No, you know what's crazy? One of my friends, she's here right now, um, Ruth and Bill True. I was at their house when I was talking to Kaepernick and we were talking and she would kill us off. So I was like, I'm talking to Kaepernick right now. I'm, I'm trying to talk to him right now. I was outside for hours. And so it was a big conversation because it was players from all over the league and it was like, you know, 30, 40 players. And we all were just talking and we were talking about what we were going to do. And, and it was such a big thing. And the crazy thing about it, at the end of the day, people were arguing. And, I, and like I said, I, I told him, I was like, at the end of the day, do what you feel is right. It doesn't have to be taking a knee. It, it could be doing a, doing a backflip. Whatever it is, whatever is your point of making a stance, let it be. We don't all have to agree on what the ideal of what we need to do, but we all have to agree on the message. And the message was that there was a lot of racial injustices going on in America. And as long as that message was, you know, out, outsourced to everybody, it would, it would be great. And I think, but with the media, they play so much into, you know, more about the need than they did about the message. And I think that was, you know, that's propaganda at its best, but you know, that, that was what we were trying to do. And within the Seahawks locker room, I mean, literally coach Carroll had us together. We talked for hours as a team, as a team. And, you know, we took a lot of, took a lot of flack because some people didn't agree with what we did. Some people didn't agree with what we did. But like I told people when I talked to the media, I got three kids and at, and at dinner, if I asked what we want to eat, 
everybody's going to want to say something. One's going to say pizza, one's going to say sushi, one's going to say Indian food. So it's hard to get people to agree on something. But at the end of the day, we all agreed on one thing. And that's, I felt like that was a big start for any group of people to actually agree on one thing. We all agreed to lock arms because we wanted to bring, we wanted to bring the community together. I felt like for, we, people felt like for a long time, it was a disconnect between um, white and black. You know, there was this white side of it where people saw some of it and some people wanted to help change it and some people ignored it. So there's a lot of white players in our locker room who wanted to step up like, you know, like Hoshka. You know, he was one of the main ones that wanted to do something because he's from a different he's from a different America from then where I'm from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And we're all from different parts of America, but we're all American. And at the end of the day, we all wanted to have something that we all agreed on. And it took hours. I mean, it took hours. People, it was to people where people had tears and it made people, it made me realize that at the end of the day, no matter how big and, you know, bad the things that we do on the field, at the core of it all, we all feel the pain that everybody else is feeling. Mm. And that was, to me, was one of the greatest things. It was one of the greatest experiences in my life. It, to me, it was better than the Super Bowl. Because, wow. I mean, because the Super Bowl, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I, I plan on going there in Houston this week, but, <laughs> but it's something about when you could get a bunch of people or even a bunch of men to sit down and actually when you built in America right now where where what being a man is e evolving and for people to be emotional about something or actually have an idea and you know you finally you you sit next to this person for four or five years and then finally you talk and you joke and then finally they open up and mm. it like it changes your mindset because it's like wow I never know you felt like that like dang we all really are brothers like I didn't know you felt like that and then for me it was like it was just a, it was just one of those things where I, I, I would always remember that moment for the rest of my life wow and it And d does that also puncture kind of the football man code, this idea yeah. that we can't be emotional, we can't shed tears, we can't speak about issues that, you know, torment us when we're not here at the practice uh, facility? I think so. I think, you know, you, you're in a macho locker room, you know, and nobody wants to be emotional. I think vulnerability is the hardest thing for a human being to do is to, is to be vulnerable. I mean, and for everybody, for I to see a guy that's, you know, knocking people out on the field and to see him shed a tear on just a thought of something that's going on, it really changes your mindset about that person. You see him, you first you saw him as a man, you saw him as this macho person, but then when you see him, you know, shedding this tear about this issue, you see him, you see him, you see him bigger than life mm. at that point of, at it because you see that at the end of it, like I said, at the core of all of it, he's, he's just like the rest of us. He's, we all see, we all breathe, breathe and eat and the same way. So it's yeah. like. Damn. We. We all shit the same way. That'll be the headline tomorrow <laughs> about this event. We all shit the same way. Is, is that under 140 characters? Can we tweet that? <laughs> oh, please. Um, you, you know what's so interesting is that that's so powerful. Like when you think about what you guys did linking arms as an organizing principle, as my friend Jesse says, like this <laughs> idea of how do you get the largest number of people to be involved in the same activity instead of just a couple of people yeah. doing a gesture. That's a powerful narrative. Why do you think that the narrative, as it was told by the sports media, like, oh, Kaepernick took a knee, but these guys are just linking well, arms. What was that misinformation about? Well, I mean, the, the easiest way to, to dis disable a whole bunch of people is to discredit everybody and turn people against each other. But like I said, at the end of the day, one thing that we talked about as the NFL and just in general with people was, don't let this be the only thing that we do. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be about the organic truth. And the organic truth is about how we really play in the seas and the communities that we're a part of. And for the Seahawks, it's, it's something we live and breathe. We're one of the most, you know, organized, you know, team or group of people in, in the NFL. We all are a part of some, you know, organization or we're a part of something that we're giving back to. And that's what we wanted to imply to the whole NFL was like, yeah, we take this need, but what's the next step? Well, now we got the conversation started. How are we going to change the young, young people around America? How are we going to have them doing what we, what we want them to do? If we, if all of a sudden I'm on this taking this knee, but at the same time I take money from McDonald's, what's, what's making me different? What's, what's, well, at the end of it all, what's making us different? Like, if we're going to talk it, we gotta, we gotta live it. And the hardest thing for people to do is to live it. I mean, that's the question the thing that when you say you're going to do something, all of a sudden you, you see us taking a knee, you know, and now we got to, people want to check the facts. What are they doing? Are they in the community? Are they giving back? What, is, how, what type of man is he? You know, 
Is he, if he's doing all this, does he take care of his wife and his kids the same way? So at the end of the day, it's hard for people to, you know, go out on that line and be vulnerable because once you become vulnerable, America's coming for you. You know what I'm saying? So you have to be ready for it. Yeah. I'm thinking of some of the threads that we've already covered, like whether it's the media saying Kaepernick's dividing the locker room, yet the team votes to give him the Courage Award. The media said, oh, the Seahawks aren't doing anything political, and yet you guys are having hours-long meeting and yeah, talking this stuff through. we meet with the district attorneys, yes, governors, well, mayors. Well, like, I mean, we're, yeah, people, I mean, police, police commissioners, you know, people, are, we, we're trying to make change. I mean, I mean, for me, like, I, I swear, like, people always talk about, like, I feel like if I die and the only thing they talk about is the Pro Bowls that I went to, which are nice, and the Super Bowl champions that I did, I feel like people are discredited me as a person because at the end of the day, I want my legacy to be what I did in the community. How did I change people's lives? What did people see? Was he a man of his word? Was he the type of man when he said he did something? Would he go out there and do it? Would he, did he go out and speak to the kids? The, it, that's the kind of person I want to be remembered as. And Because me, records are going to be broken. But the legacy you leave, it can't be broken. Because it's the truth. It's the foundation. It's, it's me. So, right. Yeah. I was thinking again about John Carlos from the 68 <laughs> Olympics. Because he's a dear friend. He... He said to me, like, look, if I hadn't have made the Olympic team, I would have raised my fist. It just would have been on 125th Street instead of Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, so it's that's about, so true. It's about standing up, not about yeah. being an athlete or who you are. It's not about that. It's all about for it's just about planting that seed for kids and getting them a chance to have something to make it grow. You know, for when when we go out in the community, we do things. I, I see kids, and for me personally, when I go to the game, it's great to see people come to the games. But like when I'm in the communities in my in the inner city and the things we do around Seattle, when I'm back home and I'm back in the small towns. It's it's for me. It's the greatest thing when you see hope. When you change somebody and you and they see when in a game people love me love the thing because we're all agreeing that we want to win this game. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But for you to go in a community and actually see somebody change their whole idea of their life, change the trajectory of what they were gonna be, and now they want to do something great. I mean, that's to me that's life, and that's what I call. That's that's that to me. That's the Super Bowl of life, really. Wow, let's let's talk about uh, your sack dancing, if we could. Um, the one my wife won't let me do anymore. <laughs> your wife said you can't do it anymore. No, she said I can't do it no more. Oh man, because cost me too much money. Uh, does that make you sad? Oh man. Um, I actually I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right. You you described your on field dancing as quote. Two angels dancing while chocolate is coming from the heavens <laughs> on a nice Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, but I get there is a question there, though. Like, what does it say about the NFL that they do try to so hyper control that that joy, I guess? You got to think about it. Like in the NBA, it's one of those things where players are seen and the players are the league. You know, LeBron James is the league. Kobe Bryant was the league. But in the NFL, it's about the shield. It's about the integrity of the shield. So the time that people get a chance to be creative out there, the creativity can't, outla can't outla outlast the shield. The shield is the most important thing. So the NFL doesn't want too many people doing crazy things because mm. all of a sudden these people become their own platform. And, mm. and no, that, that would not happen. The platform is the NFL and they want to keep producing and keep producing. I mean, it's a great business model. I can't, I can't knock them for it. But at the same time, you have to let us be creative and let us do the things that got the league to where it's at. Mm. Do, do you think they have that mentality, unlike the NBA, that, that the shield is what comes first because the injury rate is so high? And if people start getting so attracted to seeing what, say, Michael Bennett does next, and then you get hurt and aren't there, uh, I it think, pushes people away? Well, I, yeah, I think so. I think for – you think about fantasy football. You think about all these things that the thing that people are making money off of from the football, which the players don't get any of it. I don't understand it. I've been trying to figure this out for years. But uh people – don't I feel like sometimes people don't see people as human. I see people talking about I watch TV and they just like, oh, just get rid of this guy. And, and I'm like, that guy has a family like he has kids in school. He has a wife. And and sometimes I think the fans. Not that they do it on purpose, but they don't see the person as a human being. They see him as a player. You know, they they look at the person and they he tears his ACL. Or he can he can come back in eight months. 
I'm just like, he tore his ACL. Like, that's like you, he, he, he could get laid off so easily. And I think sometimes there's a disconnect between what's really going on, you know, because at the end of the day, they see the player catch the ball, but they don't see the injuries that people deal with. They don't see the, you know, the divide in the family, the time he spends away from his family, and they don't see him as being a human being. And I think, you know, the NFL needs to do a better job of, of showing that. And like you said, they, while, if they do that, then people become in love with the player and they become in love with the, they, people love the players, but they don't love their injuries. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't love that a player has CTE. They don't love that Steve Gleason is in a wheelchair. You know what I'm saying? Or a guy breaks his neck. They don't love that. They love the touchdown, but they don't love what comes with it because at the end of the day, everybody believes that these guys are making a deal with the devil. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? The deal with the devil is sometimes is great, but when it comes calling, it's one of those things where people don't have sympathy for you. Yeah, who, who's the devil in this case? What is the devil? The devil is the pain in the league, the pain, the things that come with the injuries that you that you deal with, with the, the hip surgeries, the knee surgeries, the possibility to wake up and play in a game and think like, I could lose my brain. Like this, yeah. I mean, that's crazy because you think about the word concussion, it's such a it's a word that's softened what the injury really is. Yeah. The injury is an injury on a brain. It's traumatic brain injury. It's a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Like the normal American gets a, has a concussion. They're done for two to three weeks. They're at home in a, in a room. But in the NFL, you push the play on Sunday. So, but a lot of people don't see that part of the league. They don't, they don't see that. They dish in love with the, the fantasy part of it because it is fantasy, you know, guys to get 300 yards in a game. But it's not, it's a nightmare when you have CTE. It, I mean, you, you have these like three beautiful daughters. Um, oh, I love them all too. Man. Yeah. They're, they're Trust me, it's absurdly hard cute, yes. by the way. People can look at this later <laughs> if they want to. But if, if, if you had a son and he said, Daddy, I want to play tackle football, what do you say? I probably wouldn't let my son play football at this point because simply because the where where how I grew up is different from how my kids are growing up. So I don't feel like they have to play football. I think I think me having daughters is really is the best thing that ever happened to me personally. A lot of people a lot of people judge me and say you know they discredit me or they'll say well you don't have a son. I'm like who cares? Like literally, and I had this conversation with my friends all the time. I'm like. I really literally have three people they don't have they can literally do whatever they want to do. If I had a son, he would literally be limited to following my shoes and playing the sports, which are big shoes to follow, you know, but I'm not saying that he can do it. But but my daughters really I they they can be whatever they want. They could be they could be a scientist, an astronaut. You know, my daughter wants to cure things for malaria, my other daughter wants to be a dentist, one daughter wants to be a you know, veterinarian, it's just that, that creativity to now that they really can be what they want to be. And I, I enjoy that because now it's like, my wife is like, you're like the perfect person to have daughters because I have great patience too. But I love my daughters. They, 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 they do something better for me. They, they've created me to be a better man because, you know, now my feelings and emotions have evolved because now it's okay for me to be, you know, I don't have to be macho. I could, I could sit in the little living room and be in there watching girl cartoons and doing girl things and it's okay i'm like i have daughters it's cool these shorts are short i have daughters yeah. <laughs> but i love my daughters i think my daughters are really you know they're going to be something greater than greater than me because i just the things i did are just in sports realm they really have a chance to change mm. change life so i i i'm excited about it every day i tell my wife i'm like oh i can't wait seven more years she's going to college and she's going to be this so it's, it's i enjoy it yeah, there's this famous uh, quote, uh, Buster Mathis Jr., who was a boxer, asked his father, Buster Mathis Sr., um, who was a boxer. He said, Daddy, should I box or play football? And his father said, Son, please play football because nobody plays boxing. Ooh. And it seems like, and this was a quote from like 30, 40 years ago, and it seems like today we got to update that yeah. because you don't really, now that what we know about CTE and concussions, especially in youth sports, do we really play football anymore? No, you play anymore? life. <laughs> yeah. And, and our, I think, do you think we're going to a place where football is going to become practically gladiatorial, where it's only people who grow up in circumstances that they're looking to football as a way out actually play it? I don't think so. I think, I mean, if you, if you look at the, how the NFL is made up is 90% of 
African-Americans. And most of those African-Americans come from places that a lot of people in this room would not want to be going to, you know, right. the, the jungles of America. And, um, and though their circumstances have made them, you know, the type of people they are, which, you know, sometimes it worries me and the things that we talk about in the NFL because, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you grew up in this place. And I think sometimes people don't realize some of these athletes have grown up 22 years in a certain type of America. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden they push into this, this environment that they have never been into. You know, you take a, a kid from, you know, Miami, Dade County, and mm-hmm. you put them in a, a place like Texas A&M, mm-hmm. you take them out of an all black place and then put them into where they're all the minority. Some people aren't ready for it to understand how to work mm-hmm. with that, you know, their environment. And, you know, you worry about guys that all of a sudden they have this 22 years of this certain type of way that they're living. And now they push into this pedestal to be something greater than they might not be ready for the time that's calling them to be that it might not be the time for them to be that person to be the role model that people want them to be. And it's scary because, you know, people don't waste wait. They don't, if you make a mistake, then that mistake can weigh on the rest of your life. Mm. And, you mentioned your daughters before, and I know one of the issues you're involved in is a uh, an organization uh, that's called Girls First. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about what you that know, is? It's, just a, it's an organization that's in Seattle, and and you know they're pushing you know girls STEM programs for girls of color, and you know for I mean it, for me now that I have daughters, I kind of see like what you know now what the women's rights movement was about because now I have daughters, and I'm like. This is true. It's like, you know, this is so, it's so real. Like, it, it gets real very quickly. I'm like, you know, I, I just think about like, I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll tell somebody I have daughters. And you know, the first thing they tell me, well, you better get a shotgun. Oh, that's going to be hard. I'm like, why can't somebody say like, you having daughters, man, you're blessed. Like, dang, they're going to be something great. But now if I have a son, they would say, boy, your son's going to be the greatest player ever. So it's like, it's one of those things where I wanted to be a part of an organization to be able to push girls and let them and support something that they can have an opportunity to, to do more than what what they're allowed to do. You know, I, I got. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a 12 year old daughter and I, I do hear that, too. You better get a shotgun as if your role as a father is to police your daughter's sexuality. And I'm like, I don't need a shotgun. If anybody messes with my daughter, she will f- them up. Uh, right? I, mean, I don't like this idea that it's my job to do that yeah. is absurdly sexist. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's like, I mean, I mean, I feel like it downplays the creativity or the, the ability for a young girl to be something better special not just like an instagram model nothing's wrong with instagram models if there's any in here but (laughs) i'm saying there's this this greatness to women that you know that needs to be shown and letting them have a platform to be able to be something great and i'm like that's why i'm fine with not having a son at this point in my life because and this is another journey that i get to be a part of and i'm 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 ready for it so i did want to ask you this about it's the dinner party question like, if you were going to have a dinner party and you were going to have a group of people around the table, living or dead, okay, who are you talking to? Sucks my, I, of course, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. I mean, of course, he just passed. Um, oh man, there's so many great people. Malcolm X, of course. Uh, uh, Gandhi. Um, I wouldn't say Jesus, but just like, that's such a like, everybody says Jesus type of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know if I want to say Jesus at this point. Um, not that I, don't get me wrong, I'm religious, but I'm saying this, Jesus is obviously somebody I would want to meet if I could. So let's, so he's, he's already invited to the other dinner party. Yeah, so just this dinner party, um, we got, oh man, this is, Oh, Nina Simone, because she's my favorite singer. Oh, my God. Um, I love Nina Simone. I love her. Uh, um, I don't, I don't, I, the That's last a good person, list. You keep that's saying That's a good you don't list. Know, I mean, and, I could keep, I mean, it's so many different, uh, I don't know. I, the last wow. person. Um, not Tom Brady? No, I like Tom. I, like, I mean, Tom Brady's cool, but he's not, I, could, I, don't, I don't think I want to have dinner with him. No, I know. I wouldn't want to have dinner with him. I barely want to have dinner with my own quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I, I like Russell. I'm just saying I, I was just I, I, I sit my time. I don't want to have dinner with him. 
And, and, I, I, and then lastly, I wanted to ask you this. I know that, you know, you have thoughts about possibly writing a book. Would you read a Michael Bennett book out of curiosity? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I got a children's book coming out right now with my wife, which is called Beautiful Monsters with, um, about our kids and stuff. But, you know, <laughs> beautiful monsters. They are beautiful <laughs> monsters because they yeah. can't be monsters at the time. My, my youngest daughter, she was a monster today for sure. I was like, yeah, you could have got three sacks today with that attitude. <laughs> But oh, parenting, I don't know if you want my parenting test. They consider whoopings. <laughs> day one whooping, day two whooping. <laughs> Get them right. So if you wrote. <laughs> don't, don't, you're not going to get a whooping. Yeah, yeah, didn't whoop them then. I mean, whoop them. <laughs> if, <laughs> dude. If, but if, if you wrote a, a political book, what do you don't want to say? You're keeping the title under wraps. I'm keeping the title under wraps because he's talking about my book that I'm I'm doing right now. So it's like okay. I, I, I don't want to share it just yet. It's you like it though. You, you like I love it. the title. <laughs> um, it was. I'll just say it was. I just give an approximation of what it is. Yeah, you can. Yeah. It's basically called like how to make white people uncomfortable, which I thought was. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I thought it was, I liked it. Oh. <laughs> Everybody, give it up for Michael Bennett, please. Um. Thank you, guys. <laughs> wow. Hey, I like you, man. I like you. you you're cool. <laughs> That was Michael Bennett, funny, fearless, and amazing. Thank you, Town Hall Seattle. That was a night I will never forget. And now for some choice words. One of my favorite sports politics trivia questions is, who is the first president to greet a professional sports team at the White House? Most people say John Kennedy. Some answer with that pioneering sportsman and proponent of muscular Christianity, Theodore Roosevelt. When I reply that the answer is actually President Johnson, people say, oh, Lyndon Johnson. That's when the surprise kicks in. It wasn't Lyndon Johnson. It was the man who succeeded Abe Lincoln, Andrew Johnson. The date was almost 150 years ago, in August 1865, when a baseball team called the Washington Nationals and another team called the Brooklyn Atlantics traveled to Washington to meet with Andrew Johnson at the White House. This was where, with the media on the scene, Johnson declared baseball to be the national game. Now, professional baseball was barely in its fetal stage, yet Andrew Johnson, who is hardly a canny politician, knew enough to bathe in its glow. In other words... As long as there have been professional sports, there have been politicians attempting to use professional sports to burnish their own credibility. That is exactly why pro sports teams should reassess adherence to this longstanding ritual and refuse to visit President-elect Trump in the White House. Sports has never been more symbolic, more culturally powerful, and we have not had this many outspoken political athletes centrally on the question of anti-racism at any point since the 1960s. A collective refusal to normalize this president is a critical part of resisting his agenda of hatred and division, and the reasons to do so are manifest. Donald Trump has already put himself forward as someone who is telling these political athletes to just shut up and play. After spending two years trashing this country, he responded to Colin Kaepernick's anthem protests by saying, maybe he should find a country that works better for him. Let him try. It won't happen. In other words, only the white and the wealthy get to trash the United States. It's their septic tank, and we're just living in it. But no matter whether one agrees with Kaepernick's politics, an attack on him is an attack on any athlete at any level who believes that playing a sport doesn't negate their right to political dissent. It is also very telling which individuals from the sports world are supporting Trump. 
They are a coterie of embittered refugees, the outcasts, the discredited. People like 86-year-old swindler Don King, 76-year-old rape apologist Bobby Knight, and professional Twitter troll Kurt Schilling. He has also lured in athletic legend 81-year-old Jim Brown. For reasons so complicated and political twisted, I'm writing a whole damn book to untangle Brown's political history. I will say that for those surprised at Jim Brown's fulsome support of Trump, please keep in mind that Brown was a Nixon supporter who found himself left out of President Obama's circle of elder athletic confidants with whom he often surrounded himself. I can also say that close friends of Brown, speaking to me off the record, are devastated that a man who, despite his faults, was a rock against white supremacy his entire life would take Donald Trump into his arms. There is an alternative to normalizing Donald Trump, hinted at by Cleveland Cavalier Richard Jefferson. Before his team visited 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on November 10th, he posted a message on social media saying, Words cannot express the honor I feel being the last team to visit the White House tomorrow. We can only hope that's the case. Sports is used to wash political leaders of sin through the presence of athletic glory. To visit the White House under a Donald Trump presidency is to normalize a president who is anything but normal. It's to perfume an administration that loudly celebrates torture, a Muslim registry, environmental catastrophe, bigotry, and kicking people off of their health care, condemning them to death. The only proper response is resistance. Spurs coach Greg Popovich put this perfectly when he said the week after the elections, I'm still sick to my stomach. Not basically because the Republicans won or anything, but the disgusting tenor and tone in all the comments that have been xenophobic, homophobic, racist, misogynistic. The fact that people can just gloss that over and start talking about the transition team and we're all going to be kumbaya now and try to make the country good without talking about any of those things. That's disgusting. I'm a rich white guy and I'm sick to my stomach thinking about it. I can't imagine being a Muslim right now or a woman or an African-American, a Hispanic, a handicapped person, how disenfranchised they might feel. And for anyone in those groups that voted for him, it's just beyond my comprehension how they ignore all that. And so my final conclusion is my big fear is we are Rome, end quote. The sports world has shown in the last year that it is developing a new kind of consciousness. The best way to extend that in the months ahead is to never grace this White House with their presence. No team or even Olympian is obligated to visit the White House. It is not written in any rule book or collective bargaining agreement. They have a choice, and the choice should be to just say no to going to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, unless it's with a picket sign in their hand. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week, I'm giving it to the chef, Steph Curry. And not for anything major. I mean, what Steph Curry did, though, I think is very, very important. And it hits very close to home. People might have heard about the ghost ship fire that killed dozens of people in Oakland. And what Steph Curry did was he donated a pair of sneakers to two pairs of sneakers, actually, raising tens of thousands of dollars, the most ever spent for an auctioned pair of basketball high tops. And on these specially designed high tops had the initials of everybody who lost their lives in that horrific fire. Look, anything that raises the visibility of what happened at Ghost Ship and the lives that were lost matters. And having the Bay Area's most prominent athlete weigh in matters a hell of a lot as well. It's an unbelievable, unspeakable tragedy that what, what took place in Oakland. And the fact that people had to resort to going to an unsafe space because there's no public space available in a highly gentrifying neoliberal city is really the reason why all those folks died. And the fact that Steph Curry is part of the process of not letting us forget that it took place could not be more important. Mm -hmm. 
And now it's time for Kaepernick Watch. We don't have major news like last week when Colin Kaepernick's teammates voted for him to get the Len Eshmont's Courage Award, which was a total slap in the face to their deposed general manager, Trent Balky, who leaked to the media that Kaepernick was somehow dividing the locker room for daring to express dissent. But what we do know about Colin Kaepernick this week is that he donated all his sneakers to a Bay Area homeless shelter. That's just very cool, especially when you think about how many sneakers this guy has. It also is symbolic of a lot because if you knew anything about Colin Kaepernick before he was political, you knew he was a sneakerhead. And if you're a sneakerhead and you're in your early 20s and you got a lot of disposable income, that means you got a hell of a lot of sneakers and that you treasure these sneakers. And the fact that he chose to give them all away, it just says something about where his head is as he approaches age 30, not thinking about sneakers as much as he's thinking about the people who right now are sleeping outside in the cold in the Bay Area, which, as we just said before, is a place where the poor are getting absolutely hammered. So companies like Twitter can buy up all the property and kick people out into the streets. So thank you, Colin Kaepernick. That's why the Bay Area loves you no matter where you're going to play next year. And oh, by the way, it's not just the people who've been kicked out in the Bay Area, but Colin Kaepernick also donated $50,000 to the medical clinic at Standing Rock. So all the folks who are standing strong at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline have a little bit more medical care because Colin Kaepernick saw what you're doing and gave a damn and wanted to try and help. That's all for this week. Thank you, first and foremost and centrally, to Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Mikey B, a.k.a. Black Santa, at MosesBread72. If you like the kinds of things he said, and hey, if you like this podcast, send Mikey B a message. That's at MosesBread72 on Twitter. He actually reads his Twitters. And any kind of support for him for speaking out as fearlessly and as humorously as he did is a good thing because that means we'll get to hear more of him. Thank you as well so much to Town Hall Seattle for putting us in the big room. We sold it out. Thank you to Edward Wolcher for the terrific introduction. And thank you to Jesse Hagopian, Seattle teacher, author of the terrific book More Than a Score, for setting it all up and setting us up with an amazing introduction. And thanks everyone who came out. If you're new to the pod, please go to www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Check out the back episodes. We are absurdly proud of each and every one. And if you like the podcast, please share it on social media. Tell a friend. We're going to build this one person at a time. Please call in to the Edge of Sports hotline. Let us know what you think of the Michael Bennett interview, 401-426-3343. And here's my question for you. Call into the hotline and let me know what other athletes you want me to try to interview on a stage in front of a live audience. I love doing it, and I want to do it again. For Dan Bloom, my producer. For David Tigaboo, associate producer of the Edge of Sports podcast, I'm Dave Zirin. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace.